We told a little story, a little story about your love. The children's book is about a long way. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your trashy reality TV watcher and a People's Theology host, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with Drew Hart. Drew is a professor at Messiah University, a public theologian, and author of the recently released book, Who Will Be a Witness? Also musically featured throughout this episode is Ben Grace. Ben Grace is a singer-songwriter from New York. You can get connected with both Drew and Ben Grace and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, uh, I have Dr. Drew Hart. And Dr. Drew Hart, you do lots of things in the world. Uh, you're a professor and a public theologian. Uh, you just wrote a book, uh, just released uh, a couple days ago now, uh, so fresh off the press, uh, called Who Will Be a Witness? Uh, Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Uh, Thank you for being on uh, this podcast, uh, Drew. And uh, before I jump into all the other questions about the book, I want to know first, who is Drew Hart to Drew Hart? Yeah, who is Drew Hart? I, I wake up every night thinking that same question. <laughs> um, let's see. I, well, most people probably know me as either a professor. So I, I'm assistant professor of theology at Messiah University. Mm. Um, and I've been teaching there for four. In fact, I'm just starting my fifth year mm-hmm. teaching there. Um, some people know me as Pastor Drew. Uh, I spent about 10 years as a pastor, both in Harrisburg and Philly, urban ministry. Um, and so that's uh, part of at least my, I mean, I'm not pastoring right now, but it's been a, I still get referred to as Pastor Drew mm-hmm. sometimes, mm-hmm. both here in Harrisburg and when I'm in Philly. Um, I am deeply involved in organizing work. I'm a co-leader for a group here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania called Free Together, which is a relational network of leaders, pretty ecumenical. Mm -hmm. um, And we do anti-racism formation stuff with them, um, but also make it as easy as possible for them and their churches to get involved in racial justice work in the community. So we collaborate with organizers and activists and folks doing good work in our city. And so that's a part of who I am. Um, but more intimately, um, I'm a husband and a father. Hmm. Um, I think I got three little children, three boys, oh, ages wow. nine, seven, and three. So they keep me pretty busy. Um, I'm the son of uh, Tony and Carol, my parents, uh, mom and dad, and siblings. Uh, my older sister, Christina, my brother, Jonathan, my baby brother, Jason, all back in Philly. And um, I could go on and on. I'm a child, I guess you could say, a, a fully 
full-blown PA boy um, bouncing <laughs> back and forth between Philly and Harrisburg. So those two communities, those two regions have been uh, significant for my own formation and my own relational communities. Yeah, the way you were talking about them, like you sort of uh, have only been in, in uh, Pennsylvania, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, I get around quite a bit, but in terms of actually like living, um, in fact, uh, so I'm living for the second time in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and I literally live on the very same block that I used to live on. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so, um, and in some ways, like I actually, like I lean into that. Um, mm. So like I, I, I resist, I didn't want to even leave Philly at all, um, but, you know, trying to find a, a position to teach. Um, the decision, there was a, you know, what positions were available when I was looking. And so Harrisburg um, is not far from Messiah. I had community there already. Mm-hmm. So I, we went looking to move back into the neighborhood. So very small, right? Intimate in that sense. Um, that's really important to me. Community, family, mm-hmm. relationships, um, being fully present where I live. Um, all of those things are important. Awesome. I love that. So like I mentioned at the top of the episode, you just released uh, Who Will Be a Witness? And, uh, you know, it's a lot about the Bible, theology, justice, you know, all the really good things in the world. Um, So I'm just curious, you know, as a professor, I'm sure you love learning. What was something you maybe learned more like factually about maybe the Bible or theology or even justice movements uh, as you wrote this book? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it I mean, not all of the of my writing of the book, um, the learning happened while I was writing per se. Um, so some of some of my learnings were over, you know, years, right? Mm, of just mm-hmm. learning and kind of taking in some lessons. But in the more recent, like in the last maybe three or four years, doing some more study on social change work, I think has been really neat for me to kind of learn some of that. And so one of the things that I um picked up was just things around like the effectiveness of nonviolent uh, movements mm. um, all around the world. Um, and just simply that they've been more effective than violent resistance, um, mm-hmm. which is just, it was even a little surprising for me how significant twice as likely to be um, um, successful as violent resistance. And more than that, they're growing in effectiveness globally. And that's under dictatorships and mm-hmm. democracies. Uh, nonviolent movements are actually growing in effectiveness. And that, of course, is when they are um, sustained, um, and people are participating like mass participation in it, Mm. um, that, that they are extremely successful and, and you only need, they say, in fact, the old number used to be 5%. And now they're saying, I think it's like 3.5% of the population and it's like guaranteed to work. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So it's kind of what just, you know, learning about some of the social science part of it. You know, I'm usually thinking about the theological ethics. I'm usually right. thinking about practices um, and I'm thinking about people's lives and what, I, what I've seen work. But but I, you know, to just be studying some of the social science of it um, really was helpful. Just think about not only what is faithful, but what works, right? Mm-hmm. What strategies work for actually bringing change um, in our communities. That's really awesome. So, you know, you, I'm sure you've written lots of different things in your life, especially as a professor. Uh, what did you learn maybe more particularly about yourself with writing this book? Um, probably that I can write. <laughs> I always joke and tell people it was a big I'm book. not a writer. I always tell people I'm not a writer. I'm, like, I'm not a writer. You know, I just do it because I got to. Um, and in some ways, that's still kind of true. But like, I can write. Like, I can sit down. And I can like pump it out. If I got it in me, 
I can get it out on paper. And so, yeah, this book, it's twice the length of trouble I've seen. It's almost mm-hmm. 400 pages, right? Um, and so each chapter is almost double the size of each chapter of trouble I've seen. I just pack in as much as I can. I'm just mm-hmm. trying to give everything away. That's the way I was thinking about it. Um, and so, yeah, I can write and I can be very disciplined about writing. And so just even that aspect, even though like, it's not necessarily my favorite thing to do. Like I don't, I'm a social person. I like to be around people. Um, but I think and some of it maybe just going through, um, the dissertation process and just PhD mm. work as I did, which I just like zoned. I just put my head down and just did the work and got out in four years. And so I think that shaped me to just be a writer mm-hmm. in ways that probably aren't how I think of myself, but um, I definitely am a writer when I need to be, mm-hmm. right. I can just get it out. And so, yeah. yeah I was going to say it was, a, it was a quite a large book. I, I normally don't uh, interview authors who are writing that quite that big of book uh, on this podcast, but yeah, it was, it was one of the larger ones. Um, this book is really largely about how churches specifically can be justice makers in their communities and in the nation. Um, and you mentioned this uh, a little bit ago, but you worked in pastoral ministry for some time. So how did your experience in pastoral ministry shape the concept of this book? Yeah, well, I mean, some of it was both what I've seen and not seen, <laughs> as well as um also in interacting and engaging with congregations more recently, right? So, I mean, like when I started doing Trouble I've Seen, I was being invited all over the country to do these like anti-racism workshops, faith-based anti-racism workshops with congregations. And so what I saw in those contexts were people were like, oh yeah, this is good. You know, they're finally grappling with white supremacy, systemic mm-hmm. racism, all these terms, right? They're kind of shifting how they see the world. And they like, all right, so you're inviting us to do racial justice. Uh, what does that actually mean? Right. What mm-hmm. does that actually look like? And so it was clear that these congregations just didn't have any preparation or imagination and didn't really approach it as a congregational vocation. Um, and certainly in my own experience, um, I mean, the different the two different churches that I was on the pastoral teams for, they were a little bit different, but none of them really um, had a strong organized way of going about seeking justice in the community Mm. together as a congregation. So a lot of times it's individuals, right. Going out as lone rangers, churches are better at doing mercy ministry stuff, right. Mm. How we um, provide food for folks who are hungry and things like that. Charity work. Um, Right. That charity work, mercy ministries, um, even some community development stuff that was connected to our church. Um, but not not much in relationship to systemic problems and issues that are much bigger than that, that are much more complex. Um, I often say, you know, there's a saying, you know, you teach a man to fish, right? Or give a man a fish, he can eat for a day. Teach a man to fish and he can um, eat for a lifetime. But then the problem is, what do they do if, you know, there's uh, a fence or a wall blocking access to the lake, right? Then all of a sudden you've got a bigger problem. And I think... Mm-hmm churches don't often have an imagination for what to do when they hit those obstacles. And so we've got to have um, a a more radical imagination around social change as the church so that people, people of faith, because there are many people who are passionate about justice um, and then they've got to go out and do it as lone rangers or as a part of other organizations, not as a part of what it means to be the body of Christ.
This is my part of the story, and I'm sticking to this tune. It may not seem to you like fact, but for me it is the truth. And I've wrestled. What I really love about that, uh, in my experience in seminary, uh, and I. Yeah, my even though I live in Minneapolis, my seminary is in Indianapolis, and a lot of my classmates are uh, from the Black Church tradition. One of the things that they've mentioned to me is, as much as this kind of uh, justice work is really obviously in critical for white churches to do in their own communities, one of the things that they've continue to talk about is how black churches also need to learn how to do this even better. And so what I love about your book is the way it's sort of universal to, regardless of one's context, there's ways in which you can be a justice maker within your context, Um, regardless if you're more of a white church, black church, and anything else in between. Absolutely. I mean, there's this, I'd say, false perception that even in the black church that we can put off, which is we all want to take credit for the civil rights movement and all that. But mm. let's be honest, like that's just one stream of the black church tradition. And there were many that didn't, maybe they wanted justice, um, but weren't willing to be as courageous or as adventurous and creative about pursuing mm. justice in, the, in their communities. And so mm-hmm. I think that this is an invitation for all of us that, that, that believe that God's calling for justice, that, that we can actually tangibly make a difference in our own local communities uh, but it is going to require us putting our minds together um, and putting our bodies on the line mm-hmm. and actually struggling. Yeah. Speaking of uh, putting bodies on the line, um, I, again, I like I mentioned, I live in Minneapolis. And so um, just a few miles away from where I live is where George Floyd was murdered. And that sort of was the catalyst that has started now this worldwide movement that's happening right before our eyes. And it's really hard to imagine, but people are probably going to look back on these this this summer and think of it in the same way that uh, people look back on the MLK years. Um, oh, yeah. Which is Absolutely. really amazing uh, that a lot of this was sort of immediately, uh, at least when it started, centered in Minneapolis, in my, in my hometown. Um, and so, um, you know, participating in these protests and these movements at that time, um, there's just been a lot of resurgence or a lot of consciousness about what's happening uh, when it comes to police brutality and injustice uh, in black communities all across the nation and even around the world. Um, But you wrote this book before all of that happened. Uh, And so I'm just really curious with the recent uprisings and protests all across the world, uh, what would you maybe have added or subtracted from your book uh, given these recent uh, events? Yeah, I mean, so I absolutely had no idea that this was coming and it Mm -hmm. it feels so timely. And I think some people have already asked me, like, did you write this for a moment? Like, did I in the last couple of months just throw together a 400 page book? No, I didn't. Right. Um, This was completely the manuscript was done um, before even COVID hit. The manuscript Mm -hmm. was completely finished. It's just the publishing cycle to get through and the editing and all that kind of stuff. But the manuscript was done. And so, yeah. I do mention Black Lives Matter because of the first wave. I mm-hmm. talk about Me Too. I talk about Occupy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Occupy movement. I talk about all those movements that have been significant in recent years. But but if I had known, right, that this was going to revive, I probably would have maybe centralized that even more so than I did in terms of how I shaped that one particular narrative um, mm-hmm. around the strategies for churches that are conducive for actually pursuing social change. So, I mean, that probably that and maybe in a couple other places I might have highlighted a little bit more. But the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is it it it's all within the scope of the book because I frame so much around 
just the history of colonialism and mm. white supremacy um, already, right? That that's the shadow that looms over us, and that's how I yeah. frame um, the book. And so, it 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 will feel like that. But but I probably and maybe the other thing I would have done was enter into more direct conversations around um, policing, right, mm. and policing systems because it seems that many who are committed to justice are afraid to have the real hard conversations around uh, policing and, and the birth of policing in the United States in particular, but even more broadly than the United States and the role that they have in terms of suppressing poor black and brown communities. Uh, many um, otherwise justice-oriented people want to stop short and don't want to ask dangerous questions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As it gets to the root of these systems and what are they designed to do? And are there ways that we can imagine and then construct uh, systems of public safety and well-being that actually will produce uh, more safety for more people, um, more thriving for more people. Mm-hmm. And so I think those, maybe I would have jumped into that. I don't mm-hmm. know. That's, I mean, I probably wouldn't have thought of that as something to really lean into in particular, mm-hmm. but I, it, but that seems like that's a necessary a conversation that needs to be had in the churches, especially thinking about it um, within a, a theology of shalom, right? The mm-hmm. flourishing of mm-hmm. creation um, mm-hmm. in our world. Sounds like that could have easily spiraled into a 600-page book. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Exactly. So in the middle of the book, you allude to Reverend Jeremiah Wright's famous words, not God bless America, but God damn America. And I still remember as like a young conservative kid growing up, uh, this was, and I didn't know it at the time, but this was my first introduction to black liberation theology. Um, And I just remember at the time being really warned against this. I sort of thought of it as blasphemy. Uh, It only fueled um, at the time my family and my my own hatred of Obama. Um, But obviously over these years, I've come to realize how prophetic uh, Wright's words were uh, when he, he, when he quoted this. so kind of what are some of the many ways in which Christianity and the idea of the American dream or America in general, um, what are the ways in which that has been conflated over even just the last couple of years? Um, yeah, there, there's so many ways. I mean, I think that it, what has been extremely self-evident at this moment for many folks is how Trump has been able to actually um, use that, right? I mean, Mm. was not that long ago that he walked across the street from the White House holding his Bible like he never held one up before, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Right after having, you know, um, blasted protesters, violently knocking them out of the way so he Mm -hmm. could have a photo op in front of a church, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's no question that religious nationalism and the American dream and Christianity and all these things are, have been meshed together in really powerful ways. Mm-hmm. And that it is, it's been done in a, a very effective ways, mm-hmm. right? Um, it actually works. Large swaths of the Christian, at least self-professed Christian community are marching in line with this form of course of Christianity that's mm-hmm. tied to empire and nationalism. And so people's identities literally are bound more to the nation state than it is to belonging in Christ, right? Mm-hmm. To their baptism in Christ. And, and so you can see just the powerful socialization that has gone on that made way for this to even be possible. And the scary thing is uh, anybody, and, and without Nick trying to say exactly what happened in Germany is what's happening now. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I think we got to be careful, but the, the very kinds of postures that are open to just going with whatever the leader does 
those are things to be extremely mm. uh, worried about, concerned about, especially when the church is falling in line like that, when we ought to be the ones that's, you know, that rejects the way of the emperor because we're committed to the way of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. So there's something pretty scary about um, religious nationalism in particular um, and how Christianity has just melded itself so deeply. So people get really offended, right, when you start criticizing mm-hmm. the nation state. Because um, as far as they're concerned, you're criticizing their faith. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you're criticizing um, their most sacred beliefs because um, that's been bound together and conflated one in the same with Christianity for them. Mm-hmm. So it's a sad state of affairs. And I often tell people it's it's discouraging, right, to see um, the, the manipulation of the faith and the twisting and distorting of it, the diluting of it. Mm-hmm. As a, um, who's a Jennings, Willie James Jennings, right? the disease, social imagination that mm-hmm. also ties nation state to Christianity. All of these things are, are on display. They've all been, the, the curtain's been pulled back and we can kind of see it as it is. Talk about the church sort of as this organizing community, really similar to how the organization of Black Lives Matter uh, operates and functions. Uh, What ways do you see the church being a really effective organizing community? Yeah, I mean, what is interesting is that they already are an organized community, (laughs) like literally they are an organized community. And so um, some of the hard work when you're actually doing community organizing is, I mean, it's slow, patient work of getting out there, knocking on doors, talking to your neighbors, listening to their concerns about what is impacting them most, gathering people together, identifying like what's going to be the issues, right? Mm-hmm. So when you can at least start with a nucleus and then build off of that, that's actually really powerful and makes organizing work, gives it some momentum from mm-hmm. the start. So that's why I've always been a deep believer in faith-based organizing already. Um, how do we organize uh, congregations, right? Because they are an organized group already. Um, and so, and it's also an opportunity. I mean, uh, dis, despite the fact that many um, churches, you know, just function like dead institutions with no presence in their neighborhoods, the fact of the matter is, um, it ought to be our inclination to be getting out into our communities, hearing the pain and the suffering of those of our neighbors, and responding to it, right? And 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 linking arms in solidarity, saying we're going to share in suffering and the problems that you're dealing with. That mm-hmm. ought to be the Christian posture that we have anyway. And so, yeah, it, it just seems to make perfect sense. I often tell people like community organizing in and of itself is not a Christian practice, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not going to like pretend like it is in and of itself, but it's compatible and it's conducive um, and aligns really well with Christian practices. There's no, there's nothing about community organizing that, that goes against, you know, the core identity of who we are mm-hmm. and the kind of people we're called to be, because we're called to love others and to do justice in this world. And so. Um, this allows us to do that work in really uh, thoughtful, strategic ways that redistribute power back to the community rather than just the top-down course of power mm-hmm. that we see too often in our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of uh, piggybacking off of that, 
you're you're not always you're not really necessarily satisfied with the way that the church is organized, though. Um, oh, and right, so in the right. book, you talk about or at least suggest that the church radically or- reorganized. Um, and I'm one that really cares a lot about ecclesiology and liberation. Those are things I really think a lot about in the ways that they relate to one another. Um, so what are ways in which our liturgies even may need to change in order for a radical reorganization um, to occur in the church? Yeah, and this is a tough one because, and like, it's easy for me to say some stuff because I'm like, all right, I come from like more like Black Baptist mm-hmm. and a Baptistish kind of context, yeah. and so you know, we probably hold some of this stuff a little more loosely. Although there's some stuff that people hold on tight in every tradition, totally. right? For sure. Um, but but as far as I'm concerned, like we ought to be everything's up for game that is not challenging the fundamental identity of who we are in Christ. Um, and what it means to be worshipers of God, right? Mm. Everything's up on the table as far as I'm concerned. And to the degree that our churches, uh, traditions have developed so much in the context of Christendom and colonialism and white supremacy, um, that we need to go through carefully with a fine tooth, you know, comb, just kind of grappling with our practices um, from simple things like, I mean, on the easy, you know, the visuals of white Jesus everywhere in mm-hmm. curriculum and on windows and all over the place, right? White Jesus haunts us. Um, but then white Jesus haunts us in, in his presence in other ways too, in our theology, in our liturgy, our songs that we sing, right? Um, our assumptions about what it, what the ideal member church member ought to look like and act like, right? Um, our lives revolve around this whitened westernized Jesus and so we've got to grapple with all of that. And so there's, uh, I mean, we could go, we could talk all day on just this, right? Just the, the many ways that we've been captivated by forces and inertias that have come before us, centuries before us, that still shape our assumptions about how we gather and how we worship today. Um, and so especially when, it, when we're thinking about those who've been most marginalized and vulnerable in our broader society, um, we ought to be thinking radically about how do we restructure, change policies, practices, uh, leadership, who's making decisions, right? Church boards, if you have mm-hmm. church, board, however it's structured, right? Each community is going to have to look at their structure differently, but it's going to, um, we, we should be willing to do radical restructuring, kind of like I point to Act 6 um, in the book as a, an example, right? These uh, widows uh, are being neglected from the food distribution and they radically restructure and put all, um, you know, Greek leaders now in place and re- to look over that. And so those who uh, represented the overlooked community are now overlooking literally that ministry that was, that was um, um, marginalizing them. And so I think that that provides an example where the first are last and the last are first. How do we institutionalize that? How do we put that into practice and policies um, in terms of how we organize our lives? Mm-hmm. I think these are the kind of questions that we have to ask in our local congregations. Yeah, one, one of those questions uh, that has really been pertinent to me over the last several months is, the anti-blackness that is really grounded within a lot of our Christian aesthetics. You know, I've been even thinking recently about how uh, for many churches, they wear white vestments all the time. Uh, And if people, you know, whether it's explicit or made more implicit, uh, people are going to um, see that of whiteness uh, or white things, white aesthetics in churches that are constantly being called pure and holy. Um, 
that ends up becoming this really it really, I think, informs implicitly this anti-black uh, blackness that's happening within our theology and then obviously within our like um, politics and whatnot. So I, I, I just I'm really interested in how even things like those aesthetics can actually really um, perpetuate anti-blackness uh, in our churches. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's no question. And and I know like some people are like, oh, come on. But those are are things that that was the language of the church even before colonialism and white supremacy, which sure. But but the reality is, is that those things have been consumed mm-hmm. right, by white supremacy now and have been reapplied. And so there's no question that following um, the birth of colonialism and white supremacy, that those things got reinterpreted with new meaning. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can't outside of while we still live in a white supremacist context, those will always be bound up to each other. And so we have to think creatively about our words um, and what they convey. Are they subverting white supremacy or are they maintaining it? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully the very idea of in the scriptural text of when it talked about lightness versus darkness was actually to challenge the darkness this is the good overcoming evil. Um, and so we can change our words so that we are actually doing that, mm-hmm. or we can just uh, be literalists and just use the same words, but actually doing the exact opposite of what the metaphor was actually trying to communicate in the first place. Did they ever stop to notice? Did they walk on by and leave me lying in that ditch a thousand Today, I have Ben Grace with me. And Ben, we've known each other for a few years now, and uh, you've actually been on one of the earlier episodes of uh, this podcast. And so welcome back. Uh, And the reason why we're wanting to chat again is because you recently released some new music. Uh, Tell us a little bit about kind of this new album. I know you've released other music before, um, but as like a full length, this is sort of like uh, mostly new for you or or maybe not entirely new, but uh, it's been a little while since you've released a, a full length, right? Yeah, this is my first ever full-length album. Um, I've been making music for 20 years, and I've helped a lot of other people make full-length <laughs> records, but this is my first one myself. Uh, I'm so excited about that. And the last time we talked was the very first single that I released about two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I had been doing is releasing singles since then, um, and then I kept a handful of songs back and then put them all together onto a record. So you know, some of the music has been out there for a little while, but it's amazing to me uh, over the last 24 hours, it's only been that long since it got released. How many people have been like, oh my God, I really like this song. I'm like, well, it's been out for a little while. But <laughs> I guess when you put it all together as an album, then it gives people reason to mm. to really dig in and really kind of sink into the, the stuff. So yeah, th- that is interesting. Like in the music streaming era, like, you see a lot of artists really kind of going back and forth on whether or not to release like short EPs or even just singles or to still do the full length kind of format of a, of a, uh, of music. Do you have like any sense of like which one might be better or worse? Or like, do you have any sense of what uh, might work for you? I still think it's all about marketing and promo and a story, Mm. you know? So I released singles because I'm an independent artist. I'm like, I don't have a huge marketing budget. And I was basically reinventing myself as an artist. I'd been involved with bands before. I'd been kind of a side person before, but I'd never just been Ben Grace. So Mm. I thought the way to introduce myself would be just to 
to continually leak, you know, singles out every few months to keep myself sort of in the, in the consciousness of people. Um, but you know, it's amazing when you actually do, you know, I've now put this full length album out and people really have dived in. Um, I think there's still something about the album. I, I love that because I love the album. I hope it's not dead. Uh, mm -hmm. I love the fact that there's this whole body of work, this huge statement that puts the whole thing together. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and, and honestly, at this point in time, 24 hours in, I'm addicted. I'm like, <laughs> I can't wait to get the next full length out because people really have been so uh, gracious That's great. with listening to it. And I woke up this morning to a flurry of messages, which was just thrilling. I love that. I love that. So I know that you and I were initially connected within the progressive uh, Christian world. Uh, and I know uh, to at least some degree, faith is really uh, an important part of even this album. Can you talk a little bit about some of the faith elements that were introduced or maybe your lyrical themes within the album? Yeah, I mean, this was very much an album that I wrote um, in the process of deconstruction, for sure. Mm. Uh, I grew up in a, in a tiny, very conservative, non-mainstream Christian church um, uh, that was very controlling and, um, and it kind of really had a, a theology that wasn't altogether that different to sort of Calvinism. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though they had no idea what Calvinism was. <laughs> um, but for me, a lot of this was, was deconstructing that and not just deconstructing the theology, but deconstructing uh, the, the underlying kind of elements of that, of, of purity culture, of, of shame, mm. um, of, of how we move about the cabin uh, when it comes down to, to racism. And uh, there's just there's so much that I think is bound up in belief systems um, that once you start deconstructing one thing, you know, the whole house of cards seems mm -hmm. to sometimes fall. And that's kind of what this record is about. There's just, there's a lot of themes. It's extremely ambitious. Uh, I named the album As If Words Could Heal the Wounds. And nearly every single track has an individual wound that I think that's addressing or trying to heal or speaking into or, uh, or singing over. So um, faith is, is very, very important to me. So even at this point in my life, when I kind of, I don't know how to answer the question, like, where are you on, on the faith journey? Mm -hmm. I don't know how to answer that. I still think um, it really sort of guides my whole world, and it is how I kind of see um, issues like the politics we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. It's how I see um, the Black Lives Matter movement. All of that comes through this lens of faith um, that I've been on, this journey that I've been on for quite some time. Mm hmm can you talk a little bit about I, I you just mentioned you, you just released this but now you're like really into uh you know making a full length album and everything do you have any plans of like some new music that might be on the horizon in the next year even or like are you just sort of like laying low for a little bit uh just kind of letting this new album sort of sit in uh and simmer for a little while no i got a lot of plans <laughs> mm. this this to me feels like a start you know the idea of actually finally having a full length is just the start of uh, of being ben grace and, and putting out more music uh, last year my new partner and i karen wrote 50 songs in one year um so we have a lot of material to get out mm. um i'll probably actually have i haven't told this to any fans so it'll be exclusive to you guys but hey. I, i'm gonna have a, a christmas single dropping in the next few months um you know a sort of a deconstructed christmas single <laughs> um, and I've got, uh, between Karen and I, we have a whole bunch of stuff that we want to record. Um, and then my good friend, Heather Lynn, um, I just produced an EP for her and have a song that I co-wrote with her on that. So that'll be out in a couple of weeks. So there's, there's a lot of music left to come. 
Oh, I love that. I love that. So, well, thanks so much for for sharing a little bit more about the music. I'm so excited for you uh, for putting out your first full length. I know it's not a it's not an easy task whatsoever. I, I've talked with lots of artists, and there's a reason why they want to kind of go more of the single or EP route. And you know, all the more power to them. But I know that there is certainly a challenge when it comes to uh, creating a full length, and then much less like promoting it and uh, making it stick in the era of of streaming. So, but congratulations. Uh, I'm really excited for I really have uh, dug the few songs I was taking a listen to earlier and so uh, it's all coming together and I'm just really excited for you fantastic thanks so much man I really really appreciate it You spend your last chapter in the book talking about love, specifically a politics of love. I'm curious, what is your theology of love that undergirds that politics of love? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that I, I draw from. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not always a, an Augustine fan. Um, I, I think he's right 50% of the time. Um, but the 50% that he's right, I really appreciate him. And he really has this great analogy um, in one of his uh, writings where he talks about a man who's journeying on a road, trying to get to a particular destination, but he goes off the trail. So he goes off of the main destination and he's accidentally does so, but ultimately he keeps going and he ends up getting to the right destination anyway. And he talks about biblical interpretation. Augustine's talking about biblical interpretation to make sure that, you know, um, the, all of scripture ought to lead us towards love, love of God and love of neighbor, right? That double mm-hmm. call, double bind of love. And so for us, when we do biblical interpretation, his thing is, look, sometimes you'll, you won't make, you know, a good read or interpretation of his text, but in some ways it doesn't matter if it also, if it ultimately fulfills love God, love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Um, And what is interesting about him emphasizing in that way, and of course he does say, be careful in your readings that you don't go too far off because sometimes you might not make it to the right destination. Mm -hmm. But um. But, but I think it's just this idea that everything ought to fulfill love of God and love of neighbor, I think is just a good starting point, a good reminder, which is what Jesus taught himself, right? Mm-hmm. That those were the great commandments. And then, so, so Jesus, obviously, his teachings around loving of neighbors, um, laying down our lives for one another, especially those who are in need, um, that those are really important, that we can't love others, um, actual people, you can't hate people disregard the well-being of other people and actually love God. Those mm-hmm. things are not compatible. Um, and, and then Jesus goes even as far as to say that uh, love of enemy, um, in, uh, put into the end of the Sermon on, Sermon on the Mount, and even, even in Luke on the Sermon on the Plain, it's the love of enemy. It's that characteristic that allows us to have the same characteristics of our Father in heaven, which mm-hmm. is pretty powerful um, that that's connected, that that's what will allow us to share traits. So there's something there that Jesus wants mm-hmm. to get at. So I draw and I dialogue and I think with Howard Thurman and Dr. King in particular, um, because I think 
Thurman helps us in really powerful ways, um, not to, to, to own the idea of loving others, but not to allow it to become uh, manipulated by those who are in power that try to hold mm. these things over people. And so he reminds us that these commandments were first and foremost to the oppressed and that they're mm-hmm. liberating for the oppressed, right? Um, that, it, that, that in loving our enemies, um, we're not allowing the hatred and the hatred and the bitterness to eat us up on the inside, right? And so it's really powerful um, there. And then Dr. King politicizes that, right? Because he sees the power that it has for actual social change work. And so he sees, you know, love is the most powerful weapon that oppressed people have to, to even transform an enemy into a friend. And so mm-hmm. he's thinking about the transformation, not the destruction of your enemies, but literally the conversion of your enemies um, to your side as the ultimate goal. Because his goal, some of this really, it matters what your end goal is. If you're working towards beloved community, if that's the end goal, shalom, um, then there's space for everybody, right? Yeah. Everybody has the invitation. They have the opportunity if they want to, to join in and participate and link arms with others. And so I think there's something really powerful about um, the goal, not being just destroying and annihilating everybody in your way, um, but inviting them to see something better and more flourishing for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also, um, I, I think, and this is more personally, I just, I use the frame of the love gap, just thinking about the ways that so often in our communities, everyone's got, you know, some group or whatever that we're socialized to not love, to be mm-hmm. apathetic towards. Um, but particularly, even more specifically, that there are particular communities, right, that have been historically, um, um, we've often responded with apathy, right? And so mm-hmm. we're thinking about Black folk, right, in this mm-hmm. country. We're thinking about undocumented people. We're thinking about LGBTQ folks. We're thinking about um uh, folks who are homeless, uh, poverty, right? There's mm-hmm. folks that we've been taught, socialized, conditioned um, to not have love towards. And so, especially in those cases, we've got to demonstrate our love. And then finally, uh, I knew I had to just grapple because, and this maybe was just a personal thing, um, because even as I say, and I know all these things, like I still struggle with loving certain folks. I'm mm-hmm. not out here like, oh yeah, I just, you know, uh, just turn another cheek all the time. No, I, I struggle, right? And so I, I often talk about how I resonate with the character of Jonah. Like mm. Jonah, like I get Jonah. Jonah is like, I get Jonah so deeply. Um, and sometimes we miss the significance of the Jonah. Like it's all about this horrible people who were just violence and, and just t- horrific in terms of how they just destroy and annihilate their enemies um, and will of it annihilate the northern kingdom, right, of Israel. And so for, for Jonah, he doesn't want to go and offer a word of repentance, right, an opportunity for them to change. He wants them to get what's coming to them because they've been horrible and they deserve it, right? And so when God wants to send him, he doesn't want to have any part of it because he knows what kind of God he serves. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, that's the interesting part of it. He knows the kind of God. He knows the character of God. He knows the character of God and he knows how this can end out. And so anyway, after we all know the fish and all this wild story, right? It could make a great movie. Um, but, but the end of the, this little story is, is, you know, he goes, he does end up preaching this damnation fire and brimstone message mm-hmm. and they all repent. And he's really upset because now God has given them a second chance. Right. And, and he says like, I knew God that you were, um, patient and, and kind and, and slow in anger, right? Um, I knew that you were going to forgive. 
Um, and I feel that some, I'm something like, all right, there's times where it just doesn't seem right. There's certain things I'm like, all right. And there's times where I'm like, I don't know, forgiveness in this situation just doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. And so like, this is me doing Jonah as a part of that story was like my own confessions of mm-hmm. that sometimes love is hard. It's difficult. It's good because it's restorative. It, it leaves the possibility uh, for rest, restoration of all people that people can. And I do believe just to be clear, like, it's not just about forgiving, like people got to make reparations right, and there's right, got to right. be truth telling and other things like that. So I, I'm not a, you know, just, just forgive everybody. That's not mm-hmm. what I'm, I'm talking about, but I do believe that forgiveness is important and it can help break cycles of violence and has the possibility to give people paths towards restoration. Right. Mm-hmm. And so those things I think are really important. They're challenging. I don't think they're the kind of thing that most people want to hear right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for Christians as followers of Jesus, I think they're, things that we can't just erase and pretend like Jesus wasn't calling us to that. Mm-hmm. And so these are the hard challenges that speak to me probably just as much, if probably more than may, maybe many of my readers. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, this might be a very obvious question, but how do you see who will be a witness being inspiring and liberating theological work? How do you, can you say that again? Yeah. So how do you see who will be a witness being inspiring and liberating theological work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's rooted in the understanding that, that God is a deliverer, that God is a God of justice, um, and that God invites us to participate in that work, that that's our vocation, that that's our calling. Um, our, our calling is not just to say some prayer. Our calling is not just to um, worship God in our little buildings by ourselves. Um, we are to participate in God's deliverance in the world. And so um, that's the, the the assumption. That's the starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, I mean, it's interesting that in our society, like Jesus has been so watered down and domesticated um, so that he's kind of just a mascot for the status quo, right? A mascot mm-hmm. for social dominance. Um, but when you actually look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see a radical non-viol- nonviolent, uh, you know, revolutionary who invited us to take up our cross. That's a radical call. Like you're willing to die for the cause basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Um and to clash with the establishment and to speak prophetically, have a prophetic witness in response. And after Jesus does that and clashes, calls them a den of robbers, shuts down this center of power and, and the flows of economy that's flowing through it. Um, after he does all that, like we're reminded, he said, take up your cross and follow me. That mm-hmm. means we're also supposed to do that work, um, that we've got to um, also take the responsibility of taking up our cross and pursuing justice radically to such a degree with so much faithfulness that we clash and we know the inevitable response that there's going to be clash and pushback because, you know, we're challenging systems of injustice. Mm-hmm. We're challenging the oppression. We're challenging the cycles of violence that are harming too many people um, that are created in the image of God. And so I think, um, yeah, the whole thing that that's what it's designed to do, right. To, to help us capture that vision that it's not just about being a little holy huddle, um, but that we are to participate in the vocation of justice uh, because that's what God is doing in the world. Mm-hmm. Amen. Last question. How can listeners get a hold of you and your work? Yeah, um, I guess. So obviously um, my two books are now out. So Trouble I've Seen came out in 2016 and churches are still, if you've never done any work around anti-racism, um, that's a great starting point. Um, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, and then Who Will Be a Witness, Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. They both are available anywhere books are sold. Um, and so you can, whether it be, you know, through 
call it Babylon, which is Amazon, or, or you get it through um, your local bookstore. Um, they're, they're available all over the place. And a Audible book is going to be on the way. Oh, so, awesome. um, so that's exciting as well. Um, but you can also find me. I have a personal website, drewgiart.com. And um, you can find that's my personal page. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at D-R-U-H-A-R-T. And also got a Facebook page. And you can also find me. I'm also a podcaster as well. Me oh. and Jared McKenna, we host a podcast together called Inverse. He's from Australia. And so this is a very international, global oh, conversation that we have around scripture and how to read it liberatively. Mm. Um, and so, um, yeah, so you can find us Inverse Podcast well. Awesome. Cool. I didn't know that about that. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Drew. I, I really love uh, the voice that you have in, in this world um, and the work that you've, you've uh, contributed. I, I really did really like the book. So uh, thank you so much for, for uh, contributing just one other piece to the entire world uh, on when it comes to, to justice and uh, how God is calling us to participate in it. Well, thanks, Mason. I appreciate that. Into my heart in Deep and ancient chill within my bones Ever since the envy the spill If you'd like to connect with both Drew and Ben Grace in their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.